Makarja, my friends, Falterovas Jock, welcome in all. This is the Healing Forest podcast and I am Luke. This is an offer to come and join in on our conversation and unearth how nature has rooted and supported our guests to blossom and grow within their own ecosystem and life cycle. We also try to get in as many nature puns as possible. Our guest today is a certified health and wellness coach from the prestigious Mayo Clinic. He holds a master's degree in mindfulness-based interventions, a certified investment fund director and founder of multiple successful seven-figure exits in the financial services market. In 2022, he was admitted to as a fellow in the All-Ireland Business Foundation, recognizing his work as one of Europe's leading coaches and business leaders. He is one of a handful of Westerners who lived and trained with the Yamabushi and Samurai of Japan, a loving father, a devoted husband, and daily sea dipper. It is Justin Caffrey. Konosatatu, how are you, Justin? I'm good, Luke. I'm very good, thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, welcome. Um, I'd love to just kind of cast our mind back just so we ground ourselves now. Um, going back to our breath, which will bring us back to earlier on in the forest and our walk, bringing in the hammocks and like the swaying motion and the childlike feeling of being there looking up at the canopy, at the trees, the appreciation, being connected and sharing that with you. So Justin, what is nature to you? I think, you know, for me, nature is, is everything. It's, it's you, it's me, it's, it's, you know, it's this moment, it's breathing. Um, I think especially the breath and being with trees and understanding the importance of their input to our ecosystem, but also their capacity to ground us and our capacity to be with them in terms of the gigantium history that they hold um, and the power that they offer and lessons they offer to us. One of, one of my favorite books is um, The Hidden Power of Trees, Hidden Nature of Trees, um, and really getting that insight into how they communicate, how they connect, how they use the mycelian network to monitor each other's behavior um, and then how they commune in terms of resources and energy when somebody is struggling. So I think they they embody the nature of how we should all behave. Um, and I think there's so many lessons within that. But we're all the same. We're all trees. We're, we're all carbon. We're all from the earth and back to the earth at some point. So um, I think there's a there's a there's a a general disconnect in human society where people think that they're human beings and then there's nature. Um, there's just nature, and you know at the moment we're part of it, but 
guess what? It existed a long time before we ever appeared 200,000 years ago. And God willing, it exists long after we're wiped off the face of this planet. So we're just a fleeting visitor. Yeah. And has nature been um, a place that you've gone to when in times of stress or crisis? Um, is it somewhere that you would find solitude or support in? Yeah, um, always. Um, you know, back to to being a kid and being a teenager, I would have been go to run in a park, and I always found that sense of lying in a field and staring up at the sky to be um, safe. Um, even I can remember many times not necessarily being in school when you're supposed to and uh, and being down the local park with some friends lying in a field, um, staring up the sky, watching the clouds. Um, just a great, great feeling of freedom as a child and then all through life now Nature is a place that I can go to, be very reflective, slow down, um, whether that's by the sea or into the forests. And, you know, we're talking about this before we started recording. We're very lucky in terms of our proximity in Wicklow. We've so much access to nature. So I find it as an energy to heal. Um, and even when we were lying in the hammocks earlier on, there's just a serenity um, within a forest that's just deeply profound. And I think most people are not used to the silence. And it's the silence that's encapsulated by the canopy and the the, the soil and the foliage. And it's just, there's no noise. It's like being in a soundproof environment. Um, I remember being in a, in a forest in Japan and they were telling me the story about how so many suicides are committed in this forest uh, and they believe that it's the depth of the silence sends people to a dark place to meet themselves. Um, and I can get that because when you have absolute silence, all that's kind of left is the capacity to confront the voice in your head. Um, so I think nature is powerful, but it can also be disconcerting for people as we spoke about. Some people can really struggle to to be with themselves and to slow down in nature. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we've we've designed the forest there that it's kind of, um, it caters to people. that uh, Like if you plonked someone in the middle of wilderness, you know, in the middle of a forest that they weren't familiar with, then that can heighten anxiety, the uncertainty of their surroundings or how unfamiliar it is. Um, so there's an easing into the forest and an easing out of the forest as well. Um, I went to you for therapy um, after my dad died nearly two years ago and um, we'll go back into that shortly but I remember you shared with me quite a lot of what was going on with you previously in your past and really appreciated that because I took so many things from that, um, you know, that I wasn't alone, that other people have these challenges as well. But there's quite a few um, modalities that don't do that. You're not allowed to talk about yourself um, when you are in that setting. So um, 
something that I reflected on quite a bit was you mentioning that your wife Beatrice went to the hills after your son had died, after Joshua uh, had died, and the importance of saying that someone has died instead of passed away or they've gone now, you know? So the clarity of confronting the word death and having died as well, you know? So, but the thought of her, and then I saw her uh, out running as well in Wicklow, and um, yeah, I've, I felt, geez, what an amazing uh, re- resource to tap into. You know, it's always there, like 24 hours a day, you know, it never closes. Uh, <laughs> so it's like amazing to have discovered that as well. Um, can you tell me more about that kind of time in your life and the connection that was going on for you and even the lead up to when Beatrice was pregnant um, around that time? Sure. Just as, as, a, as a side issue, what's interesting when you talk about the, the language that we speak, I, I bumped into your, uh, into your mother this morning on the way up to, to meet you. And, and, you know, she said, oh, yeah, and, you know, it's, uh, I'm you know, adapting to life now after my husband died. And it was, and I, I, I listened to her say that, and I thought, mm, that's good, really good use of language. Um, because I think language is an important sense of ownership around an event. We can often try and avoid the pain. Um, but the use of words can bring us to the pain. And then it's as you get close to it, it starts to dissipate. But the running away from it generally just promotes more pain. But but it's hard for us to to reconcile that at times. Um, in terms of um, our story with Joshua, um, you know, he was we we he was our second um, child. Um, he was he was born when we were on holiday, um, and uh, we were only away for a week. And he arrived at twenty seven weeks um, unexpectedly. When we were in Spain, um, and we never made it out of that country for a year, so it was kind of an intense holiday. Um, in the lead up to his uh, birth. Beatrice had um, four miscarriages. So we had lots of challenge in terms of getting pregnant. Our first attempt was plain sailing. Um, we, we decided to have children and our second son, Luca, was born probably within 10 or 11 months of that decision. So you kind of get lulled into a false sense of security that everything's going to go well, and it didn't. Um, so the miscarriages were a challenge I wasn't really present to the challenge, to be honest. At that stage, I was CEO of a business, um, running a pretty, pretty hectic uh, lifestyle and company. Um, and you know, now when I reflect back, I can see how much more difficult that was for Beatrice um, than it was for me at the time. But then, when uh, Joshua was born, at twenty-seven weeks, he was desperately premature. He had lots of challenges, um, and um, he was too unwell to even be airlifted by ambulance um, out of Spain and back to the UK where we lived at the time. So he he had a challenging um, 12 months where at many stages we thought he was going to to be in good shape. Um, 
He spent six months in neonatal intensive care. We then trained as his carers so that we could manage his needs. He was tube-fed, oxygen-dependent. He had heart monitors and all kinds of technology going on with him all the time. But the aim was that we would train his carers and then try and get him out of there. Um, what, what kind of size is he, like, physically? Like, is he fitting in... Into your into your hand. I mean, he was he was I think nine hundred and twenty grams, um, like just tiny, and and you know looked more like a like a bird when he was born than than a human. Um, like so frail, um, and and you know then he he grew and he and he, and but by the time he died, um, nearly twelve months later, uh, he just looked like a baby. Um, but at the start, my God, it was really shocking to see um and we were we were unlucky too that it was 2011 like now the the medical advances would probably mean that Joshua would have been okay because he had traumatic brain injuries um which are generally dealt with much easier now by cooling down the the brain um so today kids like Joshua will generally live um and develop normally but for him there was lots of challenges um so he had six months in neonatal we brought him home um we were his carers but we had to live within a kilometer of the hospital because the medical team would still come to see us um but it was great because we were a family of four um and then during that period of time he still had lots of uh times where he had to go back to intensive care so we wouldn't be able to maintain his needs so he was intubated five times over 12 months which is really really intense um for any human being but for a small baby it's horrendous and as a parent we would see them doing that and literally pin him down um get the tube down into the into the into the neck and into the into the um respiratory system and then he would go on life support. So all the kind of good work that you've done in physio and recovery and helping him goes out the window because they pump him with drugs. Um, so the fifth time, the fourth time that that happened um, was on Christmas Eve uh, in 2010. And um, when they intubated him, they said to us, look, we're not the normal medical team because it was Christmas and we've spoken to your doctors and they've said, look, if they were there, they wouldn't have intubated him because he just isn't strong enough to, to live, which is kind of harrowing to hear because as parents, you're desperately fighting for survival no matter what. And you're incredibly hopeful that, um, you know, God, the universe, whatever is going to come in your favor. So it was quite hard to hear those words after a really incredible 12 months of battle. But um, we realized that we'd kind of come to an end and we knew that when he came out of intensive care, if he came out of intensive care, the next time it happened, he would die. Um, so luckily he did come out of intensive care. We fought a battle in Spain, a bit of a legal battle with the hospital to allow him to come into our care for palliative care. And the biggest challenge was 
getting them to allow us to administer morphine um, because we didn't want him to die in hospital. He'd lived so much in hospital. And ironically, they didn't want to give us morphine because they thought we might kill him, but they were also telling us that he needs to die. So it's one of those conundrums that you come across in the medical system. But we fought the battle. We eventually were able to administer morphine patches um, because he was going to die of asphyxiation. His his lungs weren't strong enough. So it was important that wherever he was and however he died, it was pain-free. Um, so the hospital were very helpful. They, they set us up. We took him home. Um, and we had about 10 or 12 days then with us in our house in Spain. We still hadn't made it back out of the country. Um, and he died peacefully um, with us um, one morning. Um, after a challenge, like the day before, he probably had about eight or nine heart attacks. And every time he had a heart attack, we thought, oh my God, okay, he's died. And then he'd come back again. And then he'd come back again. And then he had one last night where he slept between the two of us, which was really nice, really beautiful. Um, and then the next day we knew it was coming to an end. Um, and we, my parents were there and we were organizing them to take Luca. And they were taking Luca away. Um, and Beatrice went to get Luca packed up and ready to bring him down to the beach. And I had Joshua. And when she came back into the room, I put him into her arms. And as soon as he went into her arms, he died, which was really incredible. And I think, you know, he knew that that was the connection mm-hmm. and that was where he wanted to be. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, that bit of the story is a bit intense. Um, And was it hard to express love to him, um, him being so fragile, or you were washing him and cleaning him, or were you you full on hands on? How were you connecting to him? I've got this image of a little, the bird like, you know, obviously then he goes the size of a baby, but there's a long time where there's tubes and He's tiny. Absolutely, I mean, there's a there's a there's a great approach um, called kangaroo care for for neonatal intensive care babies, where the parents come in, and um, you know you you take this tiny baby, and you're wearing your surgical gown, and you you know you open your t-shirt or your shirt, and you put the baby close to your skin. So, you know, moms and dads can do this, which is, which is great. Um, so you spend time every day. So we literally, like it was, it was full on to be in Spain with a, with a three-year-old. So one of us every day were spending time with Luca and the other person was in neonatal intensive care with Joshua. Um, but as much as you could, you would have this time where you'd have skin-to-skin contact um, to help him because it's, it's incredibly traumatic environment for children to be in neonatal intensive wards. I mean, it's it's full on trauma, um, and I spent a lot of time reading all of the kind of research papers and the neuroscience around trauma to try and understand how do we help them when we get out of here? Because we were very we, we were very hopeful that that we get them home. Um, but one of the key things is. 
skin contact, close to a heartbeat. Um, so you still have that, but it's not. It's not like having your baby at home. It's not like having the real intense cuddles and fun because he is still connected to machines. There's um, intense noise of medical machines all around you. We still hear like medical dramas on TV. We both kind of look at each other. We know the sound of every kind of machine that you could imagine that happens in any intensive care ward. But the thing about being human is that we have this unbelievable capacity to adapt and and you just do. Um, the strength of our relationship was important. I think it's 70% of marriages fail after the death of a child. But it's even incredibly high just taking care of a, of a kid with significant needs. Um, and we've seen that even in, in our time in the uh, neonatal intensive care ward, relationships broke down. And inevitably the the female tends to be left with that. Um, and I understand that too because it's like it's full on and you are thinking, you know, like, what happened to my life? Um, and the times we would we would manage each other's emotions so it wouldn't be unusual that like I'd have a bad day and that could be like lying at the bottom of the shower with the water pouring your head crying your eyes out thinking where's my life gone and then Beatrice knew she needs to kind of step up today and be the strong one and we kind of rotated that around so try your best to have that closeness that proximity but a lot of the pain I think was not having that and um, and just the intensity of, you know, doctors and, and don't forget, we didn't speak Spanish. So, <laughs> and in 2011, very few people in Spain were speaking English. Like it's it's kind of like the millennial generation in Spain now speak English. But the, you know, the doctors in 2011 who were in their 40s, very few of them spoke English. I, mean, I remember one doctor had English, so we'd have to wait for her to come. So a lot of times we had no idea what was going on with them. And even the day when, when we went in, like it was an emergency going into the hospital, we were 150 kilometers away from it. And I lost her in the hospital. And I didn't even know where she was for like eight or 10 hours. And then I didn't know if the baby was alive, if she was alive. Um, so language, hospitals, um, a lot of stress. But incredibly... When I look back in it now, I have nothing but joy and love and um, pride and fun. It, it's it actually remind it feels like a great period of time in my life. Um, but I do think we have that capacity to pull out the positives, even in a most uh, troubling and challenging time. So that crisis, life changing year or more than a year um when did it kind of kick in about helping others um like when was there a moment or was it gradual to be like leaving the hedge fund uh, managerial kind of business environment to go to helping others I think, you know, from an early age, I, I, I was interested in psychology and I probably used it for my benefit in many years of, of business. 
but the human story was always something that was that was quite compelling for me. The day that Joshua died, um, when he died, we we were getting Luca off down to the beach. So I brought him and my parents down to the beach that day, and I left Beatrice behind with Joshua. And we hadn't phoned an undertaker or anything at this stage because we didn't really know when he was going to die. It was, let's just take each day as it comes. So we had his dead body with us for for quite a few hours. And when I came back from the beach, um, I came into the bedroom and Beatrice was was washing his body and cleaning his body. Um, and I saw this really extraordinarily primal connection and almost like what I saw cleaning Joshua's body didn't even look like Beatrice it was something otherworldly um and obviously we know how to do this right because we've been around for 200,000 years and as I learned later on undertakers only appeared in the American Civil War so we've always taken care of our dead but again like that disconnection with nature, when we disconnect from death, we create separation, and, and separation is, is always a challenge. And when, when, we, when I look back on that, like Beatrice never went into therapy, ever, for Joshua's death. And I always kind of wondered, why was that? And when we came back to Ireland... So we decided to come back to Ireland after his death. She walked for months in the mountains with, with our dog. So I do think that nature connection was really important. But I think the first nature connection was connecting with his death. Like the absolute finality of cleaning the dead body of your child is not going to create any uncertainty in your nervous system as to the reality of the event. And in contrast, I didn't do that. I held his dead body for maybe 10 minutes. I put him in a coffin in the back of an undertaker's car when they arrived. And I thought that I had enough time with him. But actually, it was a fraction in comparison to, to her time. And the next kind of two years after his death, I was pushing against the reality I would have said to people, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing well, I've got over it. But more in a kind of a a masculine, you know, I'm moving on, pushing forward. Inside, I was literally starting to fall apart, but I couldn't really sense it. Um, and then I had a panic attack in a, in a meeting in, in 2014. And that's when I had a sense of, oh, yeah, okay, Things aren't really well. I didn't even know what panic attacks were at the time. I actually thought I was having a heart attack or a stroke. But, um, so you kept going for a few years in in the industry, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did like, you know, three years. I built another company. I was traveling like 150, 170 flights a year. All while grieving. But were you acknowledging that you were grieving or no? No. You, no. Okay. No. Yeah. Not at all. No, not at all. I mean, I'd probably talk about it if somebody asked me the question. Um, but the discomfort that I would have in my body to talk about it was huge. Like if I talk about Joshua's death now, of course I feel it, and I'd rather he wasn't dead. 
but it's not derailing. But back then it was like, man, I'm not going to go there. So I was drinking a lot to to medicate the pain. Um, I was working a lot. I was a workaholic and had been all of my life. So between alcohol and work, I didn't have a lot of space for anything else, which allowed me to try and forget as much as I could. Um, so the panic attack was like pretty profound um, moment because then it meant I started to read about panic attacks and, and I started to get back into the psychology and neuroscience of it all. And then I knew, okay, this is a cry for help internally from my body. I need to do something about it. Um, and I spoke to Beatrice afterwards and she said, yeah, well, you know, no shit, Sherlock, you're not well. Um, and she said, I've seen it get worse in the last few months and you've stopped petting the dogs when you come home. Um, we, you know, we have a great relationship with our dogs. One of our, our, one of our, one of our dogs died three weeks ago, but the two golden retrievers at the time. And um, and that kind of shook me when she said that. I thought, wow, I've stopped petting our dogs. Um, so I knew I needed help. I went into therapy. Um, I came from a scenario where my father was clinically depressed and heavily medicated and suicidal when I was a teenager. I was very adamant that I didn't want to go down that road. Um, I wanted to find some alternative approach. Um, and I was lucky that I found a psychiatrist who worked in non-medicated approach using more kind of Eastern Ayurvedic approaches because he's Indian. Um, went to therapy with him for about, about six or seven months and then trained with him. Um, and then trained with him for about two years and then rocked up to my board and my shareholders and told them I'm leaving and I want to go and work with people. And they all thought I'd completely lost the plot. So is that like, is that six years or five years or something? That was, uh, that was 2016. So what's that? Yeah, seven years? Yeah, okay. So, yeah. but yeah, but it took kind of three or four years to start putting oh, yeah. a plan in place. Totally. Yeah. Um, uh, that's comforting, you know, because people think that, it, oh, you know, oh, it's a year since someone's passed away and I need to move on now. Or, you know, there's all these sort of certain beliefs. Um. So it's comforting to hear that there's, uh, yeah, denial or there's avoidance and the soothing and there's there's lots of different ways of doing it. Totally. And like grief for everybody is very different and there's no prerequisite in terms of time. You know, some people can be still struggling two or three years, four years, five years later. But the key thing is, is your struggle being close to your pain or is your struggle with the pain and 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 there's there's quite a difference in those two approaches it's like you know joshua's dead and those words are very impactful like even if somebody says to me you know do you how many children do you have and if i say well i have one i had two but he's dead like that that is almost like a, a destabilizing moment for another person for me to say i wouldn't say that to somebody because it would really impact them but it shows the power of our fear around death, that it's that impact when you hear it from somebody else, especially around children dying because it's almost a, a taboo subject. But often, you know, I, I posted a video on YouTube the other day and a woman um, made a comment saying, oh, no, thanks for that. And my um, 
my child died a few years ago and and the, the, the video has been helpful or whatever. And I messaged her back and I said, well, you know, what was her name? And she said, oh, wow, um, uh, nobody ever asks me her name. And this is the thing that you find with dead children. Everybody's afraid to talk about them. Um, but having the capacity to speak their name and like for me, it's always great. My work is devoted to his memory. Um, it's so important because the pain for a lot of parents of, of, of deceased and children, whether it's through terminal illness or a tragic accident, is often around the fact that people are there in the days after the funeral, but then eventually nobody wants to talk about it because they're worried about upsetting you. But it's it's within the 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 detail that we find peace. And do you feel like you um it has a knock on effect to your relationship with your other son? How could it not? But I am with Luca. So like I was eating too many sweets. Oh, but you know, I'm overly grateful that he's here, so we'll let him away with the sweets. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Luca would definitely dispute that uh, if, he, okay. if, he, if he was here. Um, I, I think it's it's it made me a better father. Um, it made me a better husband. I think, and, and we've myself and Beatrice have spoken about this before. I don't think our marriage probably would have survived if Joshua had lived normal life because my life was hectic. I was so um, embedded within my work um, that everything else was secondary. Um, so when Joshua died, um, he put a fork in the road of my life and changed how that was going to play out. So I think as a, as a dad, um, I've been very present to Luca's life and that's been something I'm, I'm hugely appreciative of. Um, but within balance, you know, I'm, I'm from a my own standpoint I believe that we have to have structure we have to have some sense of of rules and boundaries in the way that we approach life um, and you know for teenagers you got to have some level of control you know I, I wasn't necessarily the best teenager on the planet so yeah it could be easy to allow things to drift because you feel you're lucky that your child is alive but at the same time life is just a delicate moment of balance wherever we find it so mm -hmm. he definitely would say no to too many sweets yeah <laughs> yeah sorry my language around it may be um, a bit flippant or kind of but I'm I'm aware of how um the comfort that you have in talking about it. And I feel like it's kind of doing Joshua a service, um, uh, honoring his memory, the memory of him and the impact that he's made on your life. So, um, but me just saying, oh yeah, so then what happened? Or, you know, it, it's coming from a place of me knowing you 
deeper than um, just in case people are listening and they're kind of they think that I'm being dismissive of the experience in any way, you know. Yeah, I think it's an important point, but I also think, like I've done a lot of work and studying into trauma, and we we like to categorize some traumas as more significant than others. And I think trauma is such a subjective thing. I think for some people, uh, the relationship that ends can be hugely traumatic. You know, COVID and, and, and not being able to connect to family and friends can be hugely traumatic. The loss of a job, the loss of a friendship. Um, so I think it's okay in many ways to be slightly flippant about the reality of Joshua's death because everything is impermanent and everything will change. and Nothing is here for any length of time that's predictable. And it's our attachment to the desire that we want things to stay the same that creates so much pain. So I think it's important to recognize that, yes, my trauma might seem particularly bad, but it's not in any way greater or lesser than the impact of another human being, how they are emotionally, psychologically at that moment will determine how traumatic that is. So I think it's okay to be a bit flippant. I kind of like it because we need to lighten the reality of death because guess what? It's coming for all of us. <clears throat> yeah. the um, I like that perspective, you know, but I feel like, yeah, you have that awareness due to your experiences. Um, as I was saying earlier about... Um, I, that I went to you for counseling and therapy so that when my dad died I think it was pretty soon afterwards I went to you and maybe 10 or 12 sessions I kind of committed to that and they were so huge for me um, I remember those times where I felt I was retching like I, there was some energy that needed to come out um, and like an overwhelming confusion of what was going on with the grief process and you guided me through that grief um explaining yeah i suppose there was some explaining but there was um a lived experience that you uh, that you were sharing with me about you know grief is a compounded can be compounded based on the grief that you've experienced previously in your life. You know, that made, that stuck with me and it made a lot more empathy for myself um, when I kind of related to that. Um, and it was an amazing space to be able to share whatever was on my mind and in my heart and it didn't make sense to me at all. But you allowed me to express those things and not necessarily analyze them and but just when I heard myself saying those things, it was a real relief, you know, so I will forever be grateful for for that experience with you and the consistency when my life was so uh, turbulent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and from my own kind of um, uh, perspective, how... Do you deal as a um, therapist or like um, 
with clients that don't commit to the 10 sessions or the 12 or the three or the, you know, they come and you're like, okay, this is, we're making a breakthrough here. You know, you're getting emotionally invested and then you don't see them again. Or then you get three or four said, how, how do you stay unattached, but yet empathetic? I think it's, you know, I focus on the Eastern approach of when the student is ready, then so too is the teacher. So, um, working with me is hard. Um, and we're going to explore the depths of, of your truth. Um, and as you say, quite often when you hear yourself, there's a, an understanding because when we internalize a lot, um, it's quite different to then speaking and hearing how we feel. But for some people that can be really difficult. Um, I would say maybe, I don't know, 60% of people probably stay with me, 40% don't, um, and that's okay. You know, sometimes they come back as well. Um, but my approach is kind of, a, it's a kind of a mix between, you know, I use some therapeutic approaches. I, I more look at what I do as coaching and working with somebody's nervous system and a sense of themselves and their history, allowing them to explore that and then just noticing what comes up and doing that in a, in a very mindful um, and peaceful way. And if it's for somebody at that time, great. If it's not, then that's okay too. Um, and that takes time to, to cultivate because when you do this kind of work, you have a desire to want to help people and you have to eventually find peace with the fact that not everybody will be able or want to be helped in that process. And like, if, you know, we've probably spoke about this before at the time, but my approach is so far away from cognitive-based therapy. Like this is meeting you your truth and your reality and coming to terms with it and finding peace with it so that you can just move on. It's not about tools to avoid. It's the it's the uh, the full embodiment of your pain. Um, and it's within that that we find a lot of strength and a lot of capacity to move on. So um, it's especially in terms of human performance, it's all the things that hold us back. If you get caught in grief, you get into a rumination of um, historical memories around the grief and what that brings up and how it triggers you. And, and then that just kind of can impact and bleed into all parts of your life. So a lot of my work is around, like typically somebody comes along and says, so, you know, can you fix me like really quickly? Um and for sometimes that's, you know, 10 sessions, 15 sessions. Um, but my job is not to be your therapist. Like my job is to be fired. And everybody just gets to the point where they go, yeah, I don't really think I need to go there again anymore. And then they leave. Um, so it's a far more, like it's, it's much more akin to the coaching of somebody's nervous system. When they align that nervous system with 
who they are as a human and then whole again. Now, if you think back to the, the historical root of a holy person, it is just a whole individual who is, you know, at, at one in mind and body. And that's really my focus. Um, we do lots of fancy stuff like measuring people's heart rate variability to show how that actually correlates directly back to coming to terms with who they are and their nervous system and dealing with stress. But in reality, it's just, I suppose, technically owning your shit. Mm. And how are you keeping uh, like on top of your own stuff when you're when you're helping these other people as well and you're doing your corporate talks and what are the what are your main kind of um, aspects in your life that you are nourishing on a daily basis so it's 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 procedural in many ways because you know the nature of of being human is you know we're like we're like worker ants without purpose and structure we we kind of fall apart a bit um so i i know that i need to kind of manage my nutrition um meditation um time in nature cold water movement walking slowing down um connection to other people it's you know it's a it's it's a fine balance you know i, I in in eight years i probably have had 10 days where I haven't meditated. I'm, you know, I'm not meditating for hours in the mountain. I'm talking like 20 minutes of just slowing down um, and, and bringing some purposeful meditation. But then throughout the day, it can be just connecting as I walk. So bringing an informal approach to meditation, time in nature, like we spoke earlier on, driving without the radio on, these are also very mindful ways of being and being present to emptying the dishwasher, you know, realizing that if we bring presence to difficult tasks, they're not actually that bad. Um, so I constantly monitor the need for my brain to want to move into that desire for distraction, that kind of Instagram scrolling sense that we're all pulled into and then moving away from it. Um, I've never been in therapy since, the, you know, that time in, in 2015 and I don't work and, and with a therapist um, because I don't think we need to. We, we are able to take care of ourselves. It's hard work though. Um, and for a lot of people, they just bail. Um, you know, look, it was easier with you, Luke, because you, you, you understand nature and we were able to um, commune on that point but for a lot of people what I say to them when we start off is that you know you're going to have to do the work that I said you're going to have to have a little practice every day and I'm going to be talking to them about how they eat and how they sleep and how much water they drink because for many people they have no understanding of the importance of sleep and hydration and nutrition and the microbiome and how that impacts mental health. So mental health now is 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 really neuroscience and within that 
it's it's how we take care of ourselves. But going back to what I said about the trees at the start, it is like the the mycelian network that exists under the trees is there to constantly monitor the level of nutrition and hydration in the trees and talk to the roots and connect that to everybody else. We have the capacity to mind ourselves and take care of ourselves, but it requires you to slow down and pay attention and notice how do you take care of yourself? What do you need? I often teach meditation classes and people will fall asleep in, the, in a class and they'll say to me, um, how do I stop falling asleep in meditation classes? And I say, you sleep more at night. <laughs> it's just simply your body telling you you need more sleep. It's nothing to do with meditation. So sleep is the biggest, I think, impediment that people have. Um, and most of my clients are using wearable tech um, and, and the wearable tech in terms of sleep monitors is highly inaccurate. The best way to figure out how much sleep you need is when you lift your head off the pillow, are you ready to go? And if you're not, then write down how many hours you slept and sleep a bit more. Um, so I think it's, it's a holistic sense of just minding yourself. Um, but I'm, 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 I'm probably, as my wife would probably say, a bit intense on that. Um, but because of my, my work, I'm very interested in it. So I monitor so much around my own data and stats to understand more and more and more so I can share it more with people like in, in, in one-to-one sessions, working with corporates. And also I put a lot, a lot of stuff on, on YouTube for free around simple things people can do um, because so many people can't afford to work with therapists can't afford to access anything that's outside of whatever their state provides and most mental health services are backed up with years of waiting lists so I think it's it's imperative on people in this sector to try and share as much as we can yeah I'm really aware of that as well your your videos are amazing very powerful and they're um accessible on so many platforms yeah because then that's usually helpful for people um very reassuring and great focus and guidance within them um i'd love to hear about uh japan um your training over there and that type of thing if you feel like that is some aspect you wanted to share with us sure um so yeah, I trained with uh, Yamabushi, um, and Yamabushi are the monks who protect the sacred mountains um, of Japan, um, and they come from the samurai samurai lineage. So Shanai in Japan, where we where we trained, um, is basically the last of the samurai regions, and it's a it's a mountainous area that was very much cut off from Imperial Japan. Um, and and, and the, the last battle in the Tom Cruise movie, The Last of the Samurai, was, was um, shot and, and focused on that area. So today, when you go to Shanai, a lot of the farmers are samurai warriors. Um, so they're all trained, and their family goes back 1,500 years, 1,800 years. Um, so they are fairly able to, well able to take care of themselves, but they're also just farming. Mm. And the, the Yamabushi um, were, the, were the spiritual monks 
um, and the samurai, and it's a tradition and a, and a, um, a religion called uh, Shigendo. And Shigendo um, is a mix of uh, Shintoism, which is the main religion in Japan. Religion is not really a good definition of Shintoism. Shintoism is just really a connection to, to nature and how we're all part of it. And um, uh, about 1600 years ago, Shigendo and Buddhism were brought together. And what's really impressive about Shigendo and the Yamabushi is there's nothing written. There's no textbooks. Um, it's all experienced. Um, and when you when you go and train with the Yamabushi, it is uh, in silence. Um, you hand over your watch, your phone, your clothes. Um, we wear um, traditional Japanese death robes um, and uh, chikitabe shoes, so just barefoot wraps really on your feet. And you go into training. And we go um, into the most extreme environments that you could possibly imagine. Um, and samurai training is where special forces, you know, the Navy SEALs and um, these kind of characters got their training from. Um, I wasn't really prepared for that. I didn't think it was going to be that difficult. And I kind of got a bit worried when I arrived there because three of the guys who were on the, the course with me were all ex um special forces as well um, and we spent uh, five days um, chasing a 72 year old monk um, up and down extreme um, terrain um, at one stage going up the second highest mountain in Japan at the, at, the, at the tail end of a typhoon when everybody else was coming down the mountain and, um, and being asked why are we going up and it was only afterwards, because it was all in silence, that I asked, but some woman was shouting at us one day, and they told me when we finished, she said, only the Yamabushi are crazy enough to go up now. Um, so it was a weird experience. Um, we're not allowed to talk specifically about the training, so we have to sign covenants to, to not disclose and not give away much of what goes on. But the... The key thing is you are there to meet yourself over and over again. You're there to meet yourself over and over again. There's no... Um, I think there was, there was eight of us on this particular week. Um, one of the party really struggled emotionally. Um, and you're not allowed to look into each other's eyes. You're not allowed to talk. Um, you sleep rough on the ground, just a blanket, no pillow, no nothing. There's cats walking over you in this little shack in the mountains. Um, you're woken up at all hours, so you're totally disorientated all the time. No idea what time of day it is. You wake up and it's dark and you're brought out into another hike. And we hiked one day for eight or nine hours, came back, rested. Oh, by the way, you don't eat either. So you get a, you get a rice ball every morning and that's it. 
because um, you're on military maneuvers in essence. That's the nature of what it is. But it's a spiritual quest. And um, uh, after eight or nine hours of, of hiking, we came back, we fell asleep, we were woken up again, marched back out into a, into a forest. And we were going in through the forest and um, and it was pitch black. And I could see at the very front the um, the master, Master Hoshino, stopped everybody and he was called back to one of the monks behind us who started to hand up a Japanese lantern along the way. So we we're only in these forests with literally candlelit lanterns. And as he handed it up, there was maybe four people in front of me. The master who was maybe five foot two was holding this lamp lantern and he kind of lifts it up and holds it up in the air. And there's about I would say a 10 foot tall black bear right in front of him on its back legs and it's just kind of moaning at him and we're all standing there and we're told always that we stay still, we don't talk, we don't react, you know, we just we just accept it. Before you go on, on the trip, you sign these declarations saying that you accept that you might die and I always thought that's well, kind of like American thing, right? It's not real but the Japanese... They mean it. Um, so he had some horrendous moments where he could fall off cliff edges and stuff. But the black bear was ready to uh, take us all out. And we're all standing there. Nobody can react. Nobody can move. And I'm waiting to see what Master Hoshino is going to do. And all the way through this, all the Yamabushi monks, and we're all dressed like them, but the one thing we don't have is a bell. I kept thinking, well, why do they hold bells? So he takes out this bell. And he holds the bell up to the bear and he just goes, ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. And the bear just kind of moans, looks at him, drops to the ground and wanders off into the forest. And we were, this was like maybe day two, so we couldn't ask any questions and none of us could talk about it. So whatever, three days or four days later, the minute we were all allowed to speak again, everybody just went, Jesus, what about the bear? And it turns out that for 1,500 years, the Yamabushi have lived in peace with bears. And the bears have learned that if there's a bell rung, there's no danger and it's okay. So they found this way to communicate with them. Um, so that was really interesting. But the key thing about the whole training is the connection to nature. Um, it is the sense that we are one. Um, we touch a little bit around um, Shinrin-yoko, so forest bathing, but also how we can meet extreme physical and mental pain, like sleep deprivation, extreme hunger, um, and then there's some more left inside you, and then there's some more left inside you. But the last thing about, about the Amabushi was that final day we were coming to the end and I, and I really struggled I mean there's so many times I wanted to stop but we're coming down this mountain and there was a torrent of water because there's, there's been this um, horrendous storm and as we're running down the mountain at all times in all these environments we're told be present pay attention be present pay attention because everything around you is treacherous so I'm coming down and I'm thinking oh you know I've done really well here I really feel like I've 
being on top of this. And the minute I went into that thought, I put my foot into a hole that was covered because this pathway was was just um, a torrent of a, of a, of a uh, rainfall water coming down. And it was probably three foot deep. So I face planted into the ground. My leg was now stuck in a hole and I was facing back up the mountain and the water was waterboarding me. So I literally was trying to get my head out of the way because I was now filling up with water in my mouth and my nose. And everybody ran past me. And nobody looked at me because we're not allowed to look at each other. And then the final monk who was keeping guard at the back ran past me as well. And that's when I realized, wow. So when they say nobody's coming to save you, they quite literally mean it. This is what they mean, yeah. <laughs> um. And I was moving between drowning and feeling like I've probably broken my leg um, and trying to then orchestrate my body to the point where I could get my leg out of the hole, not drown, and then try and figure out what I do next. So I did that on, you have like loads of ties on these kind of death ropes that you're wearing. So I kind of tied my leg up a bit and got down the mountain. And it was fine. We had dinner and everything else afterwards. And then the next day I went to the hospital. And I had a, like a, a doctor look at me and he said to me, you know, what, what happened? And I said, well, I was up the mountain. And he said, what happened then afterwards? And I said, well, I, I came down and I was with the Yambushi and they, they just did a bit of work on my ankle and it was fine. And he was going, oh, yeah. He said, he said, I don't know what they did. He said, but, you know, how you're even walking on it is bizarre. Um, But it was just that idea that when there's nobody else around, well, what choice do you have? Um, and and it was very helpful for me in many ways, like working with clients, but also coming to terms with that idea of Joshua's death. And like in the end, it, it's all on each one of us to manage our way forward. Um, so there was a, a lot of great lessons there. Um, and uh, I think from a, spiritual perspective it was powerful and it's one of those things that afterwards you think I would never do that again in a million years but I've been trying to go back for the last couple of years and just hasn't Japan hasn't been open so um, I, I definitely want to go back again and spend more time there but uh, yeah it was pretty mental mm. there's loads of other stories about us nearly dying loads of times it was hilarious amazing <laughs> yeah wow what a story um What's coming up next for you? What's what's exciting you the most now about like either family or business or otherwise? Um, I'm, I've I've got to do some speaking. Um, I've got to go and speak at UCD um, in in March, and I meet that with kind of equal amounts of of excitement and and you know vomiting. Um, so I kind of agreed to do more speaking engagements and I really find them uncomfortable. Um, I kind of like it when I'm there, but it's the whole lead up to it is just horrendous. Um, so I've, I'm trying to do a bit more of that. I'm trying to kind of, you know, create a bit more discomfort around that idea. Um, I started writing this year. Um, I'm really interested in taking the kind of leadership skills of 
that insight around Beatrice facing into the pain of washing Joshua's dead body to really kind of impart that idea that it is always the the difficulty, the difficult conversation, the the difficult challenge that you have to face into. That's where the growth is. That's where the opportunity is. And it's where we avoid it. We create so much pain. So I started to write um, and, and see where that goes um, around the kind of insights into the nervous system and what I've learned about our vagus nerve and heart rate variability and all the kind of neuroscience nerdy stuff, but but really getting into the heart of the story, the human being. And why I think it's, you know, like I talk a lot about this, but her story, her approach is just simply astounding. Um, and she just took the, the simpler path. Um, so that kind of excites me to explore that more um, and help people realize that it's good to get into their pain. Mm. Yeah, to embrace it. The, um, where can people keep an eye on you? What's, what's the best place to see what your offerings are? Yeah, so you can follow me on um, so YouTube. I put lots of really good kind of weekly content around neuroscience, psychology, and well-being. Um, so you can find me on there, just Justin Caffrey. Um, I post some stuff on Instagram too, um, justin.caffrey. Or you can go onto my website, justincaffrey.com. Um, there's other stuff you'll find as well. If you Google me, you find other things that I probably forget about that I'm, I do from time to time. But um, predominantly, I try and share as much as I can. I've become less good at social media since Christmas, so I need to try and get my finger out yeah, of it. It's a necessary evil. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's it. Grow more. Thank you so much, Justin. Um Deep appreciation for all of your openness. Thank you. Really, Thanks, Luke. Thank you so much for coming in today. We are so grateful to you for listening and being here with us. You can find more videos on YouTube. We have five episodes. If you like what you've heard and seen today, you can check us out in more depth. Our Instagram is The Healing Forest. The website is thehealingforest.ie. Loads of offerings, loads of good stuff. We would love if you made contact with us and gave us some feedback. See you in the forest. <laughs>